This is ContraZoom. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's episode, we are continuing our celebration of cinema from around the world. If you weren't able to ascertain from the intro, on this episode, we are talking about Japanese cinema. Japan has a long and rich history with their contribution to the fabric of film. Japan was one of the earliest countries outside of America to be introduced to movies way back in 1896, only two years after Thomas Edison premiered his Kinetoscope and the Lumiere Brothers' invention, which was shown only a year later in 1897. Because of Japan's history with the Magic Lantern, a precursor to moving pictures, Japan was an early adopter to making movies and had its first film premiere in 1897. Since then, they have given the world some of the greatest filmmakers ever, including the likes of Akira Kurosawa, Yasujiro Ozu, Kenji Mizaguchi, Hayao Miyazaki, Hirokazu Koreeda, Takeshi Miike, and Iso Takahata, to name just a small number. Today, we are going to do our best to celebrate the vast wealth of movies from Japan, and joining me on this journey is Naomi Wada Platt, a film and culture YouTuber who makes videos in both English and Japanese. She previously guested on episode 130, Imaginative, and provided a voicemail for her favorite film of 2020 in our best of show. Welcome back, Naomi, and thank you for helping me with the intro. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad that I get to help you with you know, adding some diversity and whatever to your show, which is already amazing. Yeah, it was so much fun. I'm glad、uh, we were able to do this together.、Um, actually, you know, before we start and get into this huge, big discussion, I want to know a bit about your history with, with Japanese cinema. What movies did you grow up with, and did you have any favorites? So the truth is, I grew up in a household where、um, I was taught that. The Japanese films in the 90s and、um, early 2000s are basically、um, really bad.、Um, but my dad, being a Canadian born white man who loved Kurosawa, he kept telling me, Naomi, you're too young to understand Kurosawa. When you, you know, hit your 20s, we will watch it together. So I grew up watching some anime adaptation,、um, live action films that. Are really not that great. <laughs> But yeah, it, it, was, it, it was really bad. But I actually do love、um, Late Spring. I think that's the only film that my father let me watch when I was young. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really nice. Like, Japan used to make good movies. <laughs> Yeah, that, that, was, that was one that、uh, was high up on my list as well. And that didn't bore you as a kid. You're, you're invested in the story because not a lot really happens in it. Yeah, but it reminded me of my grandfather a lot.、Mm. And at that time, I thought, okay, when I you know, become an adult, I will get married and I will have this kind of conversation with either with my father or my grandfather. So it kept me engaging, and my father kind of pressured me to enjoy it. Like he was sitting right next to me. He's like, kind of staring at me, like, Are you liking it? Are you liking it? So I was like, Yes, father. Yes. <laughs> well, that's good to hear.、Um, yeah. One of the inspirations of wanting to cover this topic was, was an article that was published by the, the British Film Institute last year, naming the best Japanese film from every year from 1925 onwards. And as I went through、mm-hmm. the list, I realized I'd only seen three of the close to 100 films listed two Kurosawa's、uh, and one. Recent best foreign language film nominee. And I realized I needed to rectify that. When, when I brought this idea of this topic in, in the article to you, what were your thoughts on it? I love it because, like I said, 
I really have limited knowledge of um, Japanese film. I only know the Golden Age films. And even in school, I did take some film studies classes. Actually, no, I only took one film classes that I nearly failed. And I actually uh, majored in East Asian studies. So I often talked about or touched on Japanese media. So I was like, this is a great opportunity to update my knowledge and revisit Japanese cinema as in current um, situation or current um, environment because I actually have many friends who are or were in film industries in Japan. So it's just like, perfect. It ties my whole life into one podcast episode and I get to just learn more and polish my knowledge. So I really appreciate it. Interesting. Do you find either either Japanese people living in Canada or the the people that you know back in Japan, is there a strong knowledge and respect for the history of the cinema? Or is it something that that is a little more on the periphery of, of society? It's they are definitely they do definitely have the history of Japanese film the uh, Japanese film in their mind for sure. But it's more like we used to be great. Now not so much. <laughs> and they want to tackle that, but they can. That's why some of them come to Canada. Some of them are still trying there, but it's a hard, hard fight. Interesting. To fight. Okay. Uh, now, I figured we'd do our best to kind of try to chronologically talk about the history of Japanese movies. Uh, but you can't really talk about Japan and really any part of its history without dividing it into essentially two eras, pre-World War II and post Unfortunately for <laughs> film historians and cinephiles, almost every movie made before World War II was lost. And that was, you know, a combination of factors, which was, you know, a devastating earthquake on the island of Honshu in 1923, the tragic atomic mm -hmm. bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the general volatility of early nitrate film reels, which sort of combined for almost everything pre-1945 to forever be lost. Sadly, that, does, that means that we don't have the ability to personally share much of any kind of thoughts of super early Japanese cinema, but we can talk about two of the greatest directors pre-war and what was to come in the post-war industry. Obviously, the directors whose work spanned both pre- and post-war was Yasujiro Ozu and Kenji Mizoguchi, and they set the stage of what was to come to define early Japanese cinema. It was slow, methodical storytelling that is often and ground in reality and, and very relatable characters. Ozu's films were, were more about everyday people, while Mizoguchi often made his films as parables. What was your exposure to these two masters and, and how they helped shape Japan's image both internally and internationally? So actually, um, Ozu is my favorite Japanese director. I'm sorry, Kurosawa. Ozu is my man. <laughs> um, so I watched um, Late Spring when I was young, but I rewatched Late Spring in my film studies class at UFT. And I remember the TA and students being so confused as to why the daughter is always just so obedient. And I realized, oh, I am her, but at the same time, I am also the audience because I know what those movies signify, where it came from. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, girls are obedient. Um, 
everyday life, slice of everyday life, but kind of dramatic in a way that, not in a way as in like action or whatever, but it enhances your emotion. Mm-hmm. And so I do see that. And as a Canadian side of me saying, yeah, that is very unique. It is beautiful on its own and it should be cherished. So it's, I do have the dilemma and I feel like I'm kind of not answering your question, but. <laughs> no, that's fine. And, you know, I, I, I managed to watch two Ozu films. One of them was, was late spring and the other one was Tokyo story. And they, you know, he sort of tread a lot of the same ground, you know, this sort of family dynamics and sort of these sort of micro events, which on the larger scale mean a lot more, you know, in, in late spring, Mm -hmm. it's this idea of, uh, of a widowed father pressuring his, his adult daughter to be married. So that way she can move on with her life and, and leave home and things like that. But she doesn't want to leave him because he's a a fussy old man. If she's not there to take care (laughs) of him, no one will. And so it's, it's all these really small interactions where she's the one that's there to kind of help with the food and help with, with tidying up after him while he's still, doing his work as a, as a professor, I believe he is. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's, it's just a very small, interesting dynamic the the relationship between the two of them. And, uh, I, I wish I had the, them in front of me. I'm going to pull it up and I'll, I'll probably end up butchering their names. But the, the two actors that played this father and daughter were, were just so fantastic. And when I watched Tokyo story, uh, the next week and they pop up mm-hmm. in that again, playing slightly different characters where she is his daughter-in-law this time, uh, mm-hmm. once again, the two of them just pulled through and really shine through as being such strong actors. And, and despite not really being, you know, loud or overly emotional, they give so much to the camera and, and you really help to connect with them. The actress, the name is Harasetsuko. She is legendary for sure. I remember seeing her face like whenever, um, there were shows about like Japanese cinema or, where where are those actors and i i remember seeing them and they're like she's pretty and she's talented mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah she has a bit of a unique look to her where i i don't want to say she looks plain but she definitely has a, a look of she doesn't have the your typical cinema glamour but she still is very mm-hmm. pretty in that same sense and i think that helps make her more relatable as a character where it's not like, Oh, she's this, you know, super hyper beautiful woman where, you know, you look at maybe some of the other characters in in Tokyo story where there are more, you know, I get, I want to say conventionally attractive, but more Hollywood, not Hollywood, but more cinema glamorous sort of style to their looks, Mm -hmm. but she still stands out. She, she just has a very unique style and sensibility to her that I was very drawn to her performances. Fun fact about her. Apparently she's been called the eternal version by people interesting for some reason yeah she uh, she does have a bit of of youthfulness to her look so maybe that's why i don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) i'm like is that a compliment or uh, i'm yeah they don't give any reasons why but uh now i was only able to watch one mizoguchi film and that was uh ugetsu um do you have any sort of thoughts on the on his style of filmmaking, which definitely seems to be more about uh, telling a grander tale than than Ozu, certainly, who you know never moves his camera and only has one style of shot where it's low to the ground. I knew that he is known for like being a perfectionist and really realistic. Um, I do remember seeing 
uh, yeah, Ugetsu. I think I watched it way back when, but um, I don't remember remember much because I have intense knowledge, immense knowledge in um, Japanese literature. That's what I'm really passionate about. So um, Ugetsu's original story, Ugetsu Monogatari story of Ugetsu, I kept going back to that instead of watching the film and appreciating it. So I feel bad for Mizoguchi and I feel like he's going to curse me and <laughs> appear in my dream tonight. That kind of sounds like the plot of it. Yeah. So I guess you should be worried <laughs> about that. Uh, you'll yeah, accidentally I... get married to a ghost. Mm-hmm. You never know. <laughs> um, so after those those two directors, there are two other landmark entities. One is a director and one is a franchise, and they both involve the movie studio Toho. Uh, there were two films that came out in 1954 that nearly bankrupted the studio, but instead of making them go under, you had Seven Samurai, directed by Akira Kurosawa, and the original Godzilla, directed by directed by uh, Isahiro Honda that became two of the most profitable films ever made in Japan and turned the studio into the powerhouse that still is today. For Kurosawa, it was already his 14th film, and he had previously directed the classics like Ikaru in 1952 and Rashomon from 1950, which actually won an honorary Oscar in 1952 for the most outstanding foreign language film released in the United States, Uh, and that was before there was even a foreign language or international film category at the Oscars. Godzilla was inspired by the King Kong movies in the United States, but instead of the movie just being another creature feature, it was made as a reaction to the use of nuclear power and the devastating bombings during the war. The film has a powerful allegory of nature getting its revenge on all the toxic waste that the bombings created and can continue to create if the world kept unleashing these weapons. These two films could not be more different, with Seven Samurai taking place in the 1500s and being inspired by American Westerns, and as such inspiring just about every Western afterwards, about a group of samurai who band together to protect a village from bandits. It's action-packed, funny, meditative, and brutal all at the same time. Godzilla might be one of the most impressive monster films ever made, though, as the general populace's fear post-World War II is on full display with some very impressive practical effects that could be just as influential to Hollywood as Seven Samurai was. Would you agree that those two movies are probably the one and one A pillars of building Japanese cinema and, and sort of what were your experiences with them? Oh, for sure. I mean, Seven Samurai, Shinin no Samurai, the original title, shaped this world of Japanese cinema and made the made his name known in the world and the existence of Japanese cinema for sure. And Godzilla, I actually didn't realize how important the original Godzilla is until I took a class about Japanese monsters and the prof said, yeah, Godzilla is just a metaphor for America. And I sat there and I went, wow, because Godzilla is now so commercialized in Japan. I grew up with it and I thought it's just another you know, scary monster. So I do definitely agree, as in Kurosawa being, becoming a household name and Godzilla shaping this whole new genre of, it's called tokusatsu in Japanese. It's a kind of superhero slash monster films or television series. So I definitely do see why 
you chose those two and it, they are definitely important. Seven Samurai for me was always, as I was getting into film, you know, you know, one of the all time classics of you must watch mm-hmm. this to, to, to really be a, a film lover or a cinephile, whatever you want to call yourself. And, and it was just one where I was just, I felt like, it was such an intimidating film to get into. I was like, Ooh, I don't know. It's like three, it's over three hours long. Uh, I I didn't have a ton of experience watching Asian cinema as as a, as a young person. So it was, I I don't want to call it a bit of a mental block because I I enjoyed watching, you know, movies from France or Italy or, or or Germany or wherever Mm -hmm. other countries where I was, I was watching foreign language films at the time. And so it wasn't the idea of, Oh, it's, it's, it's Japanese. I can't watch it. It was just sort of like a, it was just a bit different for me where it's like, I've never seen a Japanese movie. Yeah. I don't know if I can get into it. And I'm like, Oh, it, it's a samurai movie, but it's not really because it's, I, I hear it. So it's like such a intelligent film. And then I finally watched it. I'm <laughs> like, this is a Hollywood blockbuster. Like it, yeah, it, is. it blew my People mind. Don't realize that. Yeah. Like the action <laughs> scenes in it are so fantastic. And like mm-hmm. in the end sequence where they're fighting in the mud and the rain and the horses are running by, it's just so, intense and brutal at times it's just so well done i would put this up against almost any action war type movie and it's one of the best at basically everything it does really yeah oh i'm glad to hear that oh yeah it was a few years ago and it was funny i was in uh new orleans for my honeymoon and uh Mm -hmm. there was a a little stand that was selling um hand-drawn prints where it was this it was this guy who was like making prints. Most of it was pop culture stuff where it would be like either inspired by the post or for scenes from it. And I saw one that was uh, a picture of, from Seven Samurai. I was like, I have to buy this. So I bought that and I still need to frame it and put it up on my wall. But like it, th- that movie really oh. resonated with me. And, and so it, it, it holds a special place in my heart now. Oh, that's so great. I'm sure Kurosawa was like really happy in his grave hearing that. <laughs> I think the other crazy thing is once you see Seven Samurai, you realize that this idea of uh, a group of, you know, soldiers, warriors, whatever it is that this small group band together to help protect a, a small poor village that's being attacked by outside forces, that's done in so many movies like a bug's life does mm-hmm. it. uh the mandalorian did an episode on it which is you know funny where kurosawa was inspired by westerns and then westerns were later inspired by kurosawa uh, oh yeah <laughs> so it's kind of like a never-ending <laughs> feedback loop between the two of them yeah but yeah I, w- I was sort of shocked at just like how prominent that story is where it seems like every sort of you know tv show or or movie genre has done their version of of a seven samurai story Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, I think one of the factors um, as to why this film is so well received is because Kurosawa is known as just doing everything he can to make his movies come, make his visions come true to life, come into life. And, you know, as in the form of film. And I as I was reading some um, reviews or articles written in Japanese about Seven Samurai, Shin no Samurai, and they kept saying, like, the final battle scene that you mentioned, Kurosawa really wanted to be realistic. Like, everything had to be really realistic, as in the really um, accurate samurai fighting styles and how they lived. So I think his dedication to make as real as possible translated really well, and that dedication just shone through and made that movie amazing. I think, and I do 
<laughs> I think the the other thing that's very unique about it is you know, too oftentimes like I'll use the example of like of of Game of Thrones, like the the last season of that where everyone was complaining about how it was too dark and you couldn't see anything that was going on, and all these night sort of battles. You know, I would hold <laughs> something like Seven Samurai up as the ideal way to to film a battle sequence because despite the fact that it takes place in just about the hardest rain that I've ever seen in any movie and they're fighting in the mud and there's people, you know, hiding in bushes and the trees and things are on fire. You still, at every single point, know exactly who is doing what, who is still alive, who has died, what, like, where punches are landing, where bows are being shot into, where spears are being thrown, swords being used. Everything like that is still so clear, despite the fact that there's so many elements in a way that with, you know... Countless other directors, it just becomes a, a blur of, you know, fists and steel sort of thing, and you can't tell one thing from another. That is so true. I think one of the reasons that I really dislike um, Marvel, even though I love Marvel um, and other <laughs> action films, <laughs> <laughs> like action, like when you see a fight scene in recent movies, it's, you know, handheld camera, it's close ups, you know, cuts, cuts, cuts. And I just feel like I just want to sit down and look at the whole fight scene and i think that expectation was born because of watching seven samurai or other kurosawa films yeah because it's well made it's well calculated well staged yeah absolutely and and i think the one other thing is like the performance in it are just so fantastic you've got seven samurai and they all have such distinct personalities and characteristics and obviously it's it's headlined by uh, Toshiro Mifune who is probably Japan's greatest actor ever and yes. just absolutely steals every scene that he's in where you know he's this kind of playful rascal and then basically grows up in this movie to be this hardened leader who who you really do understand why everyone gets behind him the script is well written characters are well developed it is it is good. And actually, my parents, I think they ran into um, Mifune Toshiro in L.A. I remember seeing a photo of them with Mifune. And I was like, is this is this the guy who I think it is? And my dad's like, yep, like really <laughs> proud father he was. So whenever I see him, I'm like, yeah, my parents met him. Yeah. Oh, wow. wow. I know. I'm jealous. Uh, and then obviously the other thing that we were just talking about there is Godzilla. And, you know, I'm a big fan of it. It's taken me a long time to get into to scary movies. We'll get into that a little bit later, my my aversion to it. But so my, <laughs> my entry into it is I love watching the old monster movies, especially the ones made by Universal in the 1930s, you know, the, the Draculas yes. and the mummies and, and that sort of stuff. Where I, I sort of love it where it's these uh, creaky old practical effects and, and really uh, gothic romance style. And, and so Godzilla was, was nice where I sort of, I don't, it's not stylistically similar to that, but like Mm -hmm. the care that they put into developing this story and the backstory behind both the, the monster and every other person that's in it. Whereas I feel like today, a lot of the monster movies, they either focus like the recent Godzilla movies, they either focus way too much on, on the characters or, or too much on the monster. And it's, it's like the, you, you need to have that nice balance. And I don't think I've ever like gotten as emotional and, and sad as I did when I first watched Godzilla, especially towards the end where you really forge a connection with these people and you understand where their fear is, 
of, you know, using Godzilla as a substitute for, for nuclear war. Godzilla, king of the monsters, alive, surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, king of the monsters, it's alive. A gigantic beast dotting the earth, crushing all before it in a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror, raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. For sure. My grandfather, he was actually either in Hiroshima or near Hiroshima when the bomb hit. So nuclear bombs been something that's really kind of crucial in my family. So with that in my mind, that movie is just a bit too personal. And I loved the setup, like that small Fisher village. That for me is like some parts of Japan that people outside of Japan don't really see. So to see that in a film and being widely appreciated, and I actually saw it for the first time in, in a class, and everyone's just like, oh my god, it's Godzilla, like it's so cool. And it was just like, yeah, y'all enjoying it. Yeah, this is it. This is the thing. Just don't watch recent Godzillas. So that one's the best. And any sequels? No, I'm not going to talk about that. I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I really want that criterion box set that has uh all the original <gasps> toho ones because it's just such a beautiful packaging and everything oh yeah so i, I definitely Get it. I, I think it's very expensive i think it's like 200 dollars, but i think it's got like the first 20 uh toho godzilla films wow 200 not that bad <laughs> get it just get it <laughs> i'm bad influence you are because you know what maybe next criterion sale i will um yeah. <laughs> now I, I i sort of resisted the urge to not just completely binge watch every every kurosawa film in preparation for this episode and instead sort of spread out the wealth i guess as a, as a good cinephile uh but so far i've seen you know seven samurai as, as i mentioned and, and rashomon as, as i talked about a little bit earlier but also yoyimbo and throne of blood uh, and I can't wait to keep on going with his filmography. Do you have any other favorites of his, uh, either the ones that I mentioned or, or other ones I didn't? Actually, I've been avoiding um, Kurosawa because, um, as I mentioned earlier, my father promised me that he will watch Kurosawa films with me when I, you know, become an adult. But he actually passed away when I was 19. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. it's sorry that you know, I didn't want to dampen the mood, but it's something that I really want to watch more and appreciate because i've only seen seven samurai and rashomon those two and i feel like i'm a failed um japan born person <laughs> because of that <laughs> but i definitely want to watch um kumono sujo throne of blood and yojimbo um those you you've seen because i've heard those names so often and i know that they're good so it's just like i need to go but for me seven samurai and national that represent kurosawa mm-hmm. so i'm like i got the good gist of it and i'm happy with that <laughs> yeah I, those those two i think are obviously his most well known and most celebrated and i feel like the other two that i've seen are probably you know if you were to kind of make a mount rushmore of of his movies, those are probably going to be the ones that are being included. Although obviously some other ones like Ron or Ikaru or uh, yeah. Hidden Fortress are, are probably other ones that people talk about. I really want to watch the Hidden Fortress because that was like one of the main inspirations for George Lucas to make Star Wars. So I'm really kind of curious to sort of see what parallels there are for that. That's true. Yeah. It, honestly, like at this point, you just have to list all the Corsair movies and like, I need to watch this. Basically, but... yeah. 
<laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I think he's got about 20, 25 movies or something like that. And, and basically everyone's like, oh, yeah, I, I definitely need to watch every single one of them. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? I should do that and make my father proud. <laughs> Just watch everything. Absolutely. Um, now, what happened next in, in Japanese cinema is probably my, my least knowledge area uh, after the golden era of Kurosawa and Ozu, Mizuguchi and others, what sort of was happening in the industry at the same time that, you know, the American studio system was also falling apart in the 1960s. So I'm sort of curious to sort of see uh, what Japan was, was doing in that time period as well. Okay. So it has to start with 1953. No, it has to start in 1953 when television started getting popular in Japan. Um, people were, we're obsessed with this new technology, this box in the house, right? So as um, television became widely spread in that country, people just didn't go out to watch cinema. So film industry suffered a lot financially in the 70s and 90s. And within the film industry, they were like, we need to ask the government to help us financially. But the head of the Japan filmmaker guild said, nah, we just got to make good movies. Like, like <laughs> instead of, you know, getting financial support, which is like a typical Japanese, like patriarchy, um, men. I don't want to generalize everything, but it was like, oh, that sounds like what my grandpa would say. <laughs> um, so they kept suffering, even though they suffered. I have to mention Tampopo, which was made in the 80s, directed by Itami Juzo. Um, I'm actually traumatized by, by that movie, but... Really? That's one I really of, want to see. You have to watch it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this um, weird food sexual context scene. I watched it as a teenager with my father, so it was awkward. And my dad's just like, this is one of the best Japanese films. You have to watch it. I'm like, but dad, I don't want to watch it with you. I have to watch it again, <laughs> alone. But so even though financially people suffered in that industry, some people kept going and worked hard and some movies did get international recognition. So it all paid out in the 90s. But it's just this three, 30 years of just let's keep on trying, making good movies without getting any financial help. We can do it, but not really. So I actually feel bad, but it's just so stereotypical Japanese. Interesting. Don't ask for help. <laughs> it's interesting because like you, you try, I, I, I mentioned off the top this article from the BFI about the one, the best film from every year. And so obviously they do list the movies in through this whole period. But you know, if you're sort of looking at lists of greatest Japanese films of all time or, or Japanese films I should watch. Obviously, it's like very heavily skewed for like the the 1950s, 1940s stuff like that. That's that was happening on all the the Kurosawa era, Golden era, and then it seems to sort of skip a huge bunch. And then by the time the late 80s come around, uh, that's where the these similar names are happening. And, and we're going to talk about it right next. But like horror and stuff like that. But then the the more modern stuff it just sort of seems to be like this giant gap of like and and nothing of great importance was made for about 30 years yeah it's dark time so as i just said you, you know you can't really talk about modern japanese cinema without talking about the rise of horror films it's such a popular genre 
And you couldn't mm-hmm. name an American film that was remade in English for a period of time in the 2000s. You have stuff like The Ring, The Grudge, and Pulse, which were all originally Japanese movies. And then other now classics, which was stuff like Battle Royale and Audition and House. Most of these movies have either ghosts or, or supernatural in, in common, if not heavily influenced uh, the torture porn subgenre that we know today. What was really this cause of horror in Japan? Well, first of all, horror stories, scary stories, ideas of ghosts, um, spirits are just so commonly embedded into the mindset of people in Japan. You grew up with um, hearing stories of ghosts. Like during summer, around August, mid-August, there's this period um, where apparently like ancestors come back to life or actually the spirits ghosts come back and visit you kind of thing so during that time people always talk about "Ooh, i can feel the ghost blah 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 so ghosts have been part of practices of um, japan and people just love to think about this unimaginable things and just get scared and yeah, I don't know why they like being scared, but there are so many books and novellas that I read that are really scary, still haunt me. And I read that through school and I w- I couldn't really avoid, but it's just it's just part of the everyday life. Interesting. Yeah. In Japan. Ghosts and, and sort of supernatural stuff is basically the the one real no no I have with, with horror movies where I just can't do it <laughs> because like whether it, it's it's monsters or, or or people or things like that you can you can explain it away you could be like oh and this is how this was created whereas ghosts they just sort of appear and disappear and it just it just it just does not sit well with me and, you know playing with <laughs> silence and sudden noise and stuff like that. Um, like my wife really wants me to watch the others with her because she loves that. And I'm just like, no, I can't do that. It's ghosts. I can't do that. <gasps> yeah. And so it, it's just something with that. And like, I, I know not all Japanese horror films are, are ghost based, but a good chunk of them are. So that's why I've been like mm-hmm. so hesitant to be like, oh, go into that. Uh, so yeah, that, that's my sort of mental block. <laughs> I'm a big chicken. Basically. I don't, I don't blame you though. I can't do horrors, but Especially Japanese horrors, I, I I refuse to go into it. <laughs> now you you tried very hard to pressure me to watch Ringu. Uh, why mm-hmm. why did you try to do that? Because it is iconic and it is so much better than the Hollywood remake of Ring. I actually laughed the yeah I was laughing the whole time when I was watching the um, Hollywood remake of Ring. So if you have seen that you will appreciate the beauty and the complexity and how realistic it is as in you could find this random video VHS tape and get cursed and you might die. It's just the closeness to everyday proximity that you have. And yeah, it is scary. It still haunts me, but it is entertaining as well. It captures you 100,000%. Now, my problem is I don't want to be captured by the videotape, so I don't think I can watch it. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> now, have you have you seen any uh, Takeshi Miike films? Because I know Audition is like held up in very high regard in the horror community, and I often see a lot of people talk about it. And I've, you know, because I'm not a big horror person, I decided to read the the Wikipedia summary of it, and I'm like, yeah, there's no way in hell I'm ever watching that movie. Actually, um, Mike, I I've seen one of his movies, but that's because it was a live action adaptation of um, this game series that I like 
that I love on um, Yakuza, oh, which okay. wasn't the greatest film. I actually didn't like it that much. And I told my friend who is a set decorator in Japan, and she said, Miki is a bit wacky. I don't think you will like it. So I know that people love audition and I want to try it. But at the same time, I feel like I'm, my body's just not going to agree with the style of Mika. But maybe I should try it just to scare myself and, yeah, traumatize myself for a decade. <laughs> I, I think because it's so much about body horror, which is, is also it's a, a bit of a, a tougher thing, no pun intended, to stomach. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very true it's just so much more visceral and it's just I, that's also another bit of a block for me i like i, I want to watch more Aww. david cronenberg films but i know so much of that is body uh-huh. horror i'm just like oh, i don't know if i'll be able to do that so i try to do more oh, of the no. psychological thrillers not so much his straight up horror stuff <laughs> oh you don't like the blood and the guts hanging out of people's body <laughs> i think it's like doing things to the body that like that freak me out you know just like you mm. know some you know action or war movies where like you know you get shot or stabbed and you know someone's intestines fall out i can deal with that but it's like the doing things to someone especially if they're still awake or conscious oh yeah I, ugh, you yeah. feel the pain yeah yeah, yeah. Meek is very good at that. He loves blood and being grotesque. Yeah. Yep, he's known <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah, uh, like I think I read some um, reviews or um, comments on his films, and someone in Japan said, "Like, why does he have to make it so messy? Like, every everything is so messy. Like, why? Like, it's unnecessary." And I'm like, that sounds like a good description of um his films. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> one one <laughs> that I do really do want to check out is is House. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it seems really interesting because it was made in the 70s and it has like this very psychedelic vibe to it. And the director basically realized that uh, kids could come up with scarier things that don't make sense than adults can. So he basically got his kids to co-write it with him where he was like, hey, tell, tell me what you think a scary story is. And then he like basically made it, but with like, psychedelic vibes to it so it like it really trips you out while also being a little nonsensical about uh, a haunted Ooh. house and a, and a psychedelic cat oh wow yeah so i'm it's one that i, I really want to watch and it has like a very iconic poster and every time i see it, i'm like oh i really want to watch this because the poster is so cool uh i, th- I think it's like mm-hmm. the poster made for the criterion edition where it just looks so interesting so it is one one to watch but i, I don't know enough about it if i know i'll really be able to vibe with it i'll have to see <laughs> I feel like horror movies need uh, a different kind of rating system of like what kind of <laughs> horror it is. So like, like how scary or like what kind of scary is the, is the sort of thing like, uh, like something like Midsommar. I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I liked it and like, yeah, it freaked me out a little mm-hmm. bit, but I was able to handle it because it was much more of the, you know, the psychological and every once in a while there'd be some, you know, some graphic violence and stuff like that. But I, I can handle that, mm-hmm. but it wasn't mm-hmm. like, and then a ghost comes in and, you know, the the person watching it has a heart attack because <laughs> they, they can't <laughs> handle scary movies, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Funny that you mentioned um, Ms. Samar because um, as I was doing my research on J-horror, I kept going back to um, Hereditary and Ms. Samar. Like, I think Ari Aster's movies kind of remind me of J-horrors. And I think I read his comments saying like, oh, yeah, I got inspired by... Um, classic Japanese films I'm like oh now I see how he establishes the calmness and the intense scare 
but not necessarily the typical Hollywood jump scare you, where you see the threat or you know what's coming. So it's like, oh, interesting. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, because I, I liked Hereditary as well. That was probably maybe one of the scariest films I've ever watched. So I definitely had to watch that on with the lights. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Actually, I still think about um, what was the name of um character um Tony Collette played? Like she was on the corner of the ceiling. Oh, I, whenever I go to sleep, Ugh. I think she's like right above me. Yeah, and especially because I have a thing yeah. for spiders as well, and the way she like crawls up the wall just was very yeah. spider-like. <laughs> oh, yeah. So yeah, like that scene really reminded me of some Japanese horror films because um I forgot which one was it. Maybe it was Ringu, but like you see the threat that's coming close to the main character, but the main character's not realizing and you're like, oh no, oh no, it's coming. It's it's happening. That buildup yeah. is so well done in J-horrors. And that's why I think it's really scary because you're like, run, girl, run, but you can't <laughs> do anything about it. <laughs> okay, so if anyone listening who, who, based on what I was just saying, knows uh, what I maybe would be able to handle or not and has something that they think that I might be able to, to stomach, let me know and, and I'll, I'll dip my toes into the water ever so slightly. <laughs> Just watch Ringu. Yeah, Please. No, no, I will not. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I will not do that. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, now, outside of horror, modern Japanese movies sort of seem to be returning to the roots of quiet meditative works, you know, led by the likes of Hirokazu Koreeda, who won the Palme d'Or and was Oscar nominated for Shoplifters a few years ago, and his other movies like I Wish and like Father and Son. How is he viewed as the current contemporary to many acclaimed directors in the world? In Japan, he is kind of, um, he's respected for sure. And I think that is fair and very accurate. Um, he's the one who's leading the Japanese film industry and saying we have to look at the world, you know, actually go out and make films for not just for Japan, but outside of, you know, Japan. And he, I respect him a lot. And not just because um, he's a great filmmaker, but he actually, um, when he came to TIFF, um, you've attended TIFF, so you know, but um, before the screening, the program coordinator always say, we're on this land of um, this band of um, indigenous community, acknowledging the land that we're on, basically um, mm-hmm. stolen land. And uh, Koreda actually tweeted about that, saying it is very respectful. And we all come like afterwards, like we are on someone's land. And I think we have to keep that in our mind. And it's like, oh, he understands the importance of acknowledging this. So I'm just really looking forward to like his upcoming um projects interesting yeah uh shoplifters was a movie i i liked i didn't love it as 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 much as some other people did but like i really did enjoy what he was doing you know it was it was kind of a drama but also kind of a comedy at the same time too and Mm -hmm. ending with a very bittersweet note uh for anyone who hadn't seen it it's about this family who makes they're living basically stealing who find a small child and don't quite steal him, but don't exactly give him back to their family because 
they find him outside of this arguing couple's house or something like that. Um, and so they sort of raise him as a little shoplifter. And so it's, it's very, it's very interesting. Yeah. It, it's, it's cute at times. And of course there's some sadness when obviously the family eventually has to do the right thing by the, the child. Uh, but it, I, I definitely appreciate it. And, you know, you, you're talking about this idea of, of, of Coriata saying that Japan needs to make movies, not just for the Japanese audience, but for the worldwide audience, I would almost have to counter and be like, but do they? Because you you look at someone like Bong Joon-ho who made Parasite and was very explicitly a Korean film about Korean customs and culture and things like that. And, you know, on, on the surface, it really doesn't relate to, you know, North American or American sensibilities in any sense. But at the same time, you know, this idea of the human condition is, is sort of universal, regardless of if it takes place in Korea or if it takes place in America. If you just, does Coriata really feel that the need to cater to different audiences as much? Or, or, or I'm, I'm just sort of, that's something where I, I'm, I'm questioning a little bit. So um, in order to, you know, go into that, um, conversation we actually have to look at the current japanese um film industry like what they're sh- filming what they're um screening and most of the live action films the stories are pretty much like the repetition of what's been out there it's been criticized harshly by so many film um reviewers or filmmakers in japan it's just that oh there's a movie coming up oh the girl's sick and the love interest doesn't know that she's sick and blah 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 like someone's either dying and they trying to hide it or someone's just losing something it's really predictable mm-hmm. apparently like all the movies so like parasite would not be made in japan in this current climate unfortunately they just don't have the guts to do something that they're not comfortable with and Koreda actually points that out it's like they know what works, um, that what makes money in Japan, and they just don't want to go outside of that. So in order to break the mold, they do have to look outside of Japan saying, this is what's happening outside of Japan. Mm. What can we do differently here? But I definitely do see your point, too. Um, like It's not necessary to have foreign interests in your mind all the time. Like You don't have to do that, mm-hmm. but it's just... It's the same old stuff being made over there, apparently. So it's they, someone has to say, you know what? No more of this. Let's now, do something. Do you almost feel that there's maybe sort of two sides to the the Japanese industry, where you have, uh, you know, the st- the type of movies that you're talking about that are, you know will do well at the box office and will make their investment money back and that sort of thing that will never really anyone outside of Japan or, or, or Japanese descent will ever really watch. And then you have people like Koreeda who, who makes films that maybe are either more personal or, or more about the human condition in general, which makes him more internationally acclaimed. Whereas, you know, you can kind of use someone like Bong Joon-ho as a, as a contemporary example where it doesn't matter that, the the film is in Korean or it takes place in Korea about Korean people. The fact is that people from outside of, of South Korea will be able to watch and understand what he is trying to go for. Do you think that these are two completely different separate entities working or even fighting against each other in the, in the Japanese film industry? I do have to say that I personally feel like it's a, it, it is separated. Um, 
because there are some directors like Kiyoshi Kurosawa and um, Naoko um, Ogigami that I know their name because they their films, some of their films like Kamome Shokudo um, by Naoko Ogigami are well received um, in Europe. And so they do have people who can make films. Okay, that sounds really wrong, but who can make films that can break the mold but they don't realize that or the whole industry doesn't realize that because the other half that keeps making the same kind of movies are okay with the fact with the the fact that they are doing they're just going by this formula so it's just it's two separate sides that are kind of um intertwined in the middle but it's kind of polar opposite that I hope that you know it changes um soon because i feel like the industry is kind of limiting itself saying like let's just make money um get the investment back and like with the japanese um audience you can try out and see how it goes and then bring that money back and invest in more people i wish that happens but it's it's apparently not happening so (laughs) It's it's sad to see the two sides, the separate sides, kind of fighting against each other a bit. Interesting, interesting. Uh, now, I guess one of the, the last main subjects I kind of want to touch on is something that was discussed on my recent episode celebrating Asian-American cinema with Rachel Ho, and, and that's sort of American films set in Japan. You know, there's stuff like Memoirs of a Geisha, The Last Samurai, Letters from Iwo Jima, and Silence that are about real-life Japanese stories or stories that was happening over there. And then you also have films like Lost in Translation, The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift which used Japan as a backdrop to tell the stories of, of mostly white Americans and sort of fish-out-of-water scenarios. How are these movies received by the Japanese movie-going audience? Okay, you know, in order to answer that, let me just explain how kind of complex um, Japan's idea of Japan being accepted by the world or um, appreciated by the world um, while acknowledging the stereotypical or how the world views Japan does that make sense? Yeah, no, please go ahead. So um, Japan likes it when people talk about Japan, like people outside of Japan talk about Japan. Um, they're like, ooh, like people know about us. Ooh, people think that we're cool. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> but it's it's cute in, <laughs> in their own way. But they do know that the stereotypical image of Japan's portrayed. Um, and they are kind of okay with it. Because they know that that's not the reality. Because they live there, they know that, oh, this is fiction. And fiction should be appreciated as a piece of fiction. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yay, they're talking about something. They're talking about Japan, but it's this fictional Japan, but it's still Japan. So it's good kind of thing. With that being said, some of the movies about Japan um, that depict Japan in a stereotypical way, I just cannot deal <laughs> yeah so i guess like the the one that we talked about on the the asian american cinema was was memoirs of a geisha which you know is a all asian cast about all uh japanese mostly japanese uh characters despite the fact that not all the actors are japanese a good chunk of them are, are chinese or from other places in in east asia um 
Is that a movie that is, you know, it's it's a very Hollywood film. Is that a movie that that did well there or or was received at all? Because I I remember reading up a bit after it that the the person the the actual geisha that the story was based on uh I think sued them or something like that because it was yep. so it was so yep. radically different. Yeah, she sued him, the author. I don't know how that went, but the movie itself um, the reviews were, oh my god, the way that they depict Japan is so incorrect. The way that kimono's um worn, or just everything, every minute detail was apparently really wrong. I cannot watch that movie because I just, I just can't. <laughs> um, one um Chinese actress playing a Japanese role, where there are some Japanese actors who could have play that role so it's just i'm avoiding that movie and then knowing that they just kind of butchered the depiction of japan i'm like i'm staying away from it um i think box office was it didn't do that badly but the reviews that i checked are just like yeah this is a really fictional um kind of fetishized japan that are really incorrect so kind of um reaction Interesting. Now, I, I remember, uh, you know, behind the scenes revealing stuff. We obviously emailed each other a whole bunch talking about this topic. Uh, you, when I mentioned, or I believe you had mentioned silence, and you uh, you had some thoughts on it. So I definitely want to hear your expanded thoughts on uh, on that Martin Scorsese film. Do you really want to hear it? Do you really want? Are you ready? I, because I, I'm because going to I wasn't, rant. I wasn't very crazy about that movie, so I don't think you're going to offend me with it. Okay. Before anything. The Silence, the original novel by Shusaku Endo, that novel changed my life. So that book is really important to me. With that being said, I hated The Silence <laughs> so much. And I hated it like after like a second, like second into the movie, because it is clearly not shot in Japan. And the fact that Scorsese, the worldly renowned director, didn't do, didn't go extra miles to make believe that it is actually happening in Japan. It pisses me off so much. I'm sorry, Scorsese, you can kill me, but I'm going to say what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, but I do have to say that he did a great job um, with casting because unlike um, Memorials of Keisha, he cast... Um, yeah, I think um, all Japanese actors, some yeah, some of them were even comedians that I knew. So when they popped up, I'm like, what are you doing here? Why? So that was really, um, that was really, I think that's the only good thing that I can say about that film. And the fact that um, they changed the ending, um, it's really different from the original novels. So as a hardcore fan of Endo Shusaka, I was like, nope, I, I, I just can't do it. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you recall I, how the novel's ending was different? I don't want to spoil okay. it. Okay. Everyone should read it. Like I'm begging everyone to read the novel. It is really good. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it, and the fact that like the original novel you can kind of predict where it's going but endo's um writing style is really dramatic and it captures just, like the emotions that you feel through his words and between the lines it's so great but silence i didn't 
I, I just couldn't get into it. Is it because, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. Andrew Garfield. He was, yeah, he was way too pretty to play the role. <laughs> <laughs> I, he, he was the biggest reason why I didn't care for it. I thought he was miscast. Yeah. Uh, it, like every single time I saw him, I'm like, girl, you pretty. Like, no, like I was picturing somebody else completely. Even Liam Neeson could have played the role. Yeah. So I was just like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. That, that movie. Um, but I actually checked some reviews on Japanese websites and people are saying like, oh, like Scorsese um, did his own take of the on the um, novel. So it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was surprised that it was well received in Japan. And people pointed out that um, the Japanese actors, their English, you know, are is heavy with them um, Japanese accent. And the fact that he didn't hide it, like they kind of embrace that um people really like that so it's i you know what i'm happy that they're happy with that but no that movie no okay <laughs> good to know uh i guess yeah. or, you know the, the last thing i really want to talk about is like are there any movies that uh we didn't get a chance to really talk about that you want to maybe mention some of your favorites for me there there's two in particular uh and that would be uh uh i i hope i i say this correctly harikari and uh and lady snowblood both of them being samurai films but being so completely different i watched harikari and it just sort of blew my mind in the same way that seven samurai did and that you can take this you know what ostensibly is a very slow moving story of uh a guy just talking to um a courtroom full of people like a courtyard full of people and and slowly unraveling this you know weave of a story about how uh he's there to kill himself because he's a samurai who can't get work and then slowly we learn that uh his son-in-law did the same thing before and we learn what their relationship is and why he did that and how he was doing it to provide for his own son uh so it was just it was there was one that like the way it unfolded really blew my mind and then of course at the very end it actually becomes like a typical samurai movie where you've got the the sword fighting scenes uh and they're so well done that i, I just couldn't help but be impressed with with all of that uh is that a movie you had seen before no i haven't but now you are making me want to watch it, so I'll definitely watch it within a month. Oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Uh, and yeah, the other one that I, I mentioned there was Lady Snowblood. Uh, I'm watching it, and like within like the first like half an hour or so, I'm like, man, this really feels like a Quentin Tarantino movie. And I hop on IMDb <laughs> on my phone, and I'm reading the trivia, and and sure enough, it's like, and this is the main inspiration between Kill for Kill Bill. I'm like, ah, oh, of course, exactly. Now I get it. <laughs> yeah that movie i haven't seen it i feel like i'm i feel like i'm a failure because i haven't seen the some of the most iconic films uh, made in japan but i've seen some of the scenes um from that movie and the original and um the remake ones and i was like damn that's cool and i love a good female leading films so it is definitely on my list and i love some tarantino vibe i mean it's other way around right it's music which vibe that inspired tarantino but i love that kind of um atmosphere and dynamics so i will definitely watch it yeah uh so yeah are there any other uh japanese films that we didn't get a chance to talk about today that uh that you either highly recommend or, or have a, a deep affinity for um actually 
I haven't seen this film yet, but it's called. Oh, I'm gonna butcher this so hard. Thermai Romai. Um, in Japanese, it's called Terumai Romai. It's about this. Uh, I don't know what it's even about. Um, which is kind of weird to say, but um, it's actually a film adaptation of uh, this comic series, and it's about Rom Roman um, Empire back in the days, and it's about spa, so bathhouse, and it ties into this Roman bath culture and Japanese bath culture, and it's a comedy, <laughs> and apparently it's really well made, and the main actor Abe Hiroshi. I grew up watching his films, and he is a really good actor, but he's just only known in Japan, and I feel like it's a shame because he has depth, he has range. So I heard that this movie shows his um, talent and skills, so I hope people watch them and make him popular like Ken Watanabe, and yeah, one day he will just randomly appear in a Hollywood film. Okay, well, that's good to know. Um, now, I guess people are probably spent the entire episode screaming that we once didn't touch on animated films, a style that Japan has made all their own. Uh, and that's because this is an epic two-part series, and you're going to be back in a few weeks on part two of us celebrating Japanese cinema. Was it hard biting your tongue not to bring up things like Studio Ghibli or Akira? I'm bleeding. Like, my mouth is bleeding right now. I've been, you know, <laughs> yeah. My tongue's bleeding, my cheeks are bleeding. Like, yeah, I'm bloodbath over here. It's like Mika, yep. So people can be rest assured, we are going to do a full episode all about animation and anime and talking about that. And this is a, I'm, I'm very excited because this is a, a, a genre I know very little about. So I'm very excited uh, for uh, for you to kind of teach me what you know about that. And it's funny, uh, I have a, a podcasting friend, Paulo Batista, who uh, who hosts the Oscar Death, Death Race podcast. Um mm -hmm. And uh, and he found out that I was doing this, and he's like, "Oh, do you do you need me to come on for the anime episode?" Because he has an anime podcast as well. And I'm oh. like, and I was like, "Well, you know what? I'm 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 gonna hold off on that. Uh, but what I'm gonna do <laughs> is I'll, we'll probably do something later along the lines. But I know he's excited to kind of hear what uh, a beginner noob like myself probably thinks of of some of the classics. I'm excited to hear. Yeah, like I agree with him. Like I'm excited to hear your thoughts on Japanese anime and educate you on what's going on there or what has been going on over there. So I'm so looking forward to that episode myself. I, I'm woefully underprepared. I'm very excited to finally watch Totoro and Inspirited uh, and Away and, and House Moving Castle and Akira and, uh, and all the other classics. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. You will um, love it. If I, not... I'm sure I will. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. Now, Naomi, I want to thank you for, for joining the show today and sharing your expertise and your personal stories. You've taught me so much already, and I hope people enjoy listening to this episode as much as I did making it with you. Now, if people want to follow your work, what is the best way to find and follow you? Um, you can follow me on YouTube. Just search me, um, my name, Naomi Oda Platt, P-L-A-T-T. I talk about um, Japanese politics, movies, not just Japanese movies. Um, I actually talk about pretty much everything, but I'm, I've am i been focusing on um, Japanese politics and news. So hopefully my videos can help um, those who want to know why some of the Japanese films are the way that they are. Um, I hopefully can um, provide some answers to that. But yeah, YouTube's the best way. And um, Instagram 
and Twitter, the same handle, um, Yamada Platt. So just, yeah. Well, you're certainly a great follow. I'll make sure to link to all that stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. (laughs) I had so much fun. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. Uh, Now, stay tuned for next week when we preview what movies we're most excited looking forward to in the new year with, as I just mentioned before, Paolo Bautista of the Oscars Death Race podcast. You can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Make sure you visit ContraZoomPod.com for all your CZP needs. And today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it will be a huge help for us to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.